0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series The Power of the Gospel. So turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled "The Spirit of Adoption."
1: I find it amazing how often the Apostle Paul gives various names to the Holy Spirit. We've heard him call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead. Now in today's passage, Paul has a new name for the Holy Spirit. He calls Him the Spirit of Adoption. Now that's significant because, as we will see, this title will be essential in understanding if we're truly saved. Let's read Romans 8, 12 to 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, as we work our way through our passage today, we're going to see that adoption is central to Paul's thought. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That may lift a few eyebrows, said Packer, that justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of the future, is the primary blessing and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. But that's not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel, end quote. Now that's quite a statement to make, and, and at, at first it seems hard to believe. But the more that I've thought about that, the more I think that Packer is right. Let me explain. Adoption does not follow by logical necessity. God could have given us a new heart and put a desire in us to love his ways. He could have forgiven our sins and made us acceptable in his presence. In that case, how joyful it would have been to be in his army, one of his chosen troops ready to go to battle for our king. How joyful to be one of his servants who are given the privilege of serving before his throne. David, I think, said it right when he said it's better to be one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. He said he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Just imagine being invited before God's throne to worship him and for all eternity to find delight in the beauty of his holiness. That's what forgiveness of sins has granted us. And it's more than enough. And in that truth is my soul satisfied. But it would seem that God is not satisfied with that. Instead, the great king has not only transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but he has adopted us into his family and given us the legal status of royalty. We have been made into sons and daughters of the king. This was unanticipated, and it seems more than we can imagine. Now, just before we look at the text, let's make sure that we understand this image of adoption. See, when we think of adoption today, we think of a child with no parents being adopted by a mom and a dad through through an agency. I mean, there's something wonderful about that image, that someone without a home is given a home, except that the practice we know of today was unheard of in the ancient world. So whatever Paul has in mind when he speaks of adoption, he cannot mean what we typically think of today. You see, adoption didn't actually exist in ancient Israel, and that's because there already was a system in place where a child would be brought into the extended family of his or her dead parents. But adoption in the ancient Roman world was typically a practice that was only done in wealthy families. Normally, wealthy families would limit their children to three, and only the oldest son would be the heir of the family's name and would inherit the wealth. But because of high mortality rates, many wealthy families had no official heir. And so a wealthy man would look for a bright, healthy, and energetic young man with proven abilities who would inherit the name and the future of the family. Arrangements would be made with a father of the young man, and the natural father would agree to cut off all relationships with his son. Then the young man would enter into a wealthy home with vast holdings and with power and prestige. The young man would have to be trained to be able to bear the name of the prestigious family and to carry on its management. You know, an example of that would be Augustus Caesar, who was adopted by his great uncle Julius Caesar. Upon the death of Julius, Augustus inherited his estate, and because of that, was considered the main contender for the throne of Rome, and that explains how it is that Augustus became the Caesar. And that's the image. The great God of heaven adopts a child into his family to inherit his great wealth, to represent his great name, and to rule and reign with him in a way that befits the glory of his throne. And that's the image. And that's why when Paul begins this discussion of the Holy Spirit's role in our adoption, he begins with the words of Romans 8, 12 to 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. Now, before looking at the details, please notice how this teaching fits with the idea of adoption. It's not just that we're made a part of the family of God. We have been chosen to rule and reign over the works of God, and as such, we must learn to conduct ourselves appropriately. Of course, in this passage in Romans, there are numerous images all converging into the same place. See, Paul has already taught us that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And now he tells us of the debt that we have incurred, but it is not a debt to the flesh. We owe nothing to the flesh. And then he gives us what we might call a life and death alternative, and we need to press this image as forcefully as Paul presses it here. Older theologians called this the mortification of the flesh. You know, the word to mortify doesn't mean to be embarrassed. Rather, it means to put to death, to kill, to murder, or even to execute. Now, please notice three important details we must not miss. Here now is the first. According to verse 13, you are to put to death the deeds, or other translations will say, the misdeeds of the body. This is not a passive phrase. We're not to wait for the Holy Spirit to do it. We must do it. We must wage war against our lower nature and repudiate all that's wrong. And Jesus in Matthew 5:29 said, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Become violent with your flesh. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9:27 spoke of disciplining his body and keeping it under control. Indeed, the entire image of self-control is that we do not allow our lower impulses to rule our will. Instead, the body is to be submissive to our wills and ultimately to the rule of God. We must rule the body lest the body rules us. All believers are commanded to root out with deadly earnestness all causes of sin in our lives. If there's an area in your life where you displease your Savior, you are commanded to find a way of killing that thing. No peace treaty, no uneasy truce, all-out war until that thing that displeases your Savior is dealt a death blow. So first, that is what we are commanded to do. You must do it regardless of the cost. And second, you must do it. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. But how are we to do this? And Paul answers, by the Spirit. In the next verse, Paul will tell us that one of the roles the Holy Spirit takes is that He leads us and we must submit to His leadership. We must ask for His help in our weakness. We must listen when He convicts us. We must actively set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We must walk in step with the Spirit. And as we do these things, we are learning to rely on His and not our own power. We are engaged in a great battle, but we fight this battle with the greatest weapon ever devised, the Holy Spirit. And now what's at stake? I suspect there are many who simply will not believe Paul's warnings, but nonetheless, he is crystal clear. Verse 13 contains no nuances. It's straight out easy to understand truth. If you are to live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Either you put the flesh to death or the flesh puts you to death. If you don't mortify the flesh... You're going to hell. There is no eternal hope for the person who does not engage in warfare to kill the flesh. You are in a warfare in which what is at stake is your immortal soul. And some are going to protest and say, but wait a minute, hasn't Christ died for me? Please understand, according to Romans 6, it is only by dying with Christ to sin that the penalty for sin is paid for. No, it won't do to talk about being forgiven by Christ and then living according to the flesh. That's a contradiction. More than one person has been confused by such a sloppy gospel and has lost their soul. Don't be deceived. What you are engaged in is a deadly war, engaged in in earnestness. And when we come back, we're going to get a sense of how we can still have this abiding sense of eternal security.
0: In our introduction, we're reminded of the amazing truth of what happens to us when we're saved. We become adopted sons and daughters of God. What this means is truly life-changing when you think about it. For we're not just part of His family, we're made to be heirs that share in reigning with Him. But when it comes to the war against sin, as children of God we are dead to sin and made alive to live for Him through the one God sent to save us. When we come back, we'll understand how we can learn to fight in the power of the Spirit. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything, from the mountains, the valleys, the planets orbiting the sun, to the breath flowing in and out of our lungs. In all things, God is sovereign. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things scripture calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever-present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Newfeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit
1: backtothebible.ca. When some believers read Romans eight thirteen, they immediately despair. It seems after all the hope that was presented in Romans eight one, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that by the time we get to Romans eight thirteen, that it seems we have not progressed past Romans seven. It was in Romans seven that Paul painted a weary picture of the flesh at war with our wills, and this battle seemed to be up in the air. That's why the chapter ends with this plaintive cry, "Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Indeed, if I am fighting the misdeeds of the body, it now seems like the stakes have been ratcheted up. And because of that, the despair is greater. See, once in a while, I'll speak with someone who will tell me they have lost the war against the flesh. Now, this is especially true of those who struggle with repeated and habitual sexual sins. The power of the lower nature and of the deeply ingrained habits have become so severe they feel like a midget fighting a giant, and they feel like they're losing. And by the way, this kind of response is, is actually not limited to sexual sins. It's, it's found in all habitual sins. They seem overwhelmingly terrifying. Can I offer any assurance to them at all? Well, indeed, I can. But in this, I have exceedingly good news and exceedingly bad news. Let me blurt out the bad news first. If you lie down in your patterns of sinfulness, if you never raise your sword against the flesh and simply give up saying, well, it's hopeless, then I promise you it is hopeless. There is no hope for you. But there is exceedingly good news. And the good news has everything to do with adoption and the power of the Spirit. I don't care if you've been struggling with the same sin for 40 years. I have exceedingly good news for you. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Now, please hear that promise. That's a categorical promise. Every person, not some, but every person who is being led by the Holy Spirit is a son of God. And by son, Paul means an adopted son. One who is destined to rule and reign the Father's estate. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, what the Spirit does is to enlighten and to persuade. And I'm sure that's right, but let's see if we can expand on that. According to Jesus, in John 16, verse 13, the Spirit guides us into all truth. That is, he shows us the way. See, imagine, if you will, an aboriginal guide leading the first European explorers through the wilderness. Because the guides knew the way, what was required of the explorers was that they follow their leadership. In the same way, the Spirit is guiding us into God's truth. He gives us an interest in the Bible, which he inspired. He opens our hearts to find the things written of in the Bible to be welcomed in our lives. And so that takes care of Dr. Jones's first half of the equation that the Holy Spirit enlightens us. Now the second half. The Holy Spirit persuades us. Ephesians 4.30 warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That means we should not resist his persuasion. I take it from that that one of the roles that the Holy Spirit plays in us is to urge us and empower us and excite us to carry on in the battle with sin. I want you to notice how similar that language is to what Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 16-18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so in Galatians, the idea of being led by the Spirit is synonymous with desiring the same things that the Spirit desires. And what does the Spirit desire? Well, according to Paul in Romans 8, the Spirit desires to glorify the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit wants to make much of or to to pay attention to the wonders of the Father and the Son. And as He leads us, we find we desire also not our own glory or our own praise, but the praise and the reputation of and love for the members of the Godhead. Now, if that's what you're finding in your own life, that the glory of God is becoming your highest joy, that you have come to desire the things of God above all other things, if that's what's going on inside of you, it's going on because you are being led by the Holy Spirit. If that's happening in you, then categorically, regardless of everything else, you are a child of God. You are a son or a daughter of God. Now then, let's press on to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So please notice the difference between a son and a slave. A slave is afraid for every act of failure or disobedience that the slave displays is met with displeasure and punishment. But... When an heir was adopted into a household, that heir was being trained to manage and rule over and represent the estate of a wealthy father. See, the difference between a slave and a son is incredible. A slave is forced, even threatened into compliance. A son is being trained to rule the estate. A slave is afraid of failure. A son is being trained for success. Let's put it practically. Let's assume that you're in a fight with a flesh because you are. The fight is life and death. If the flesh wins, you die. If you win, the flesh dies. The slave learns the law and knows that failure is fatal. The son does not fear failure, but anticipates that his training is good enough to make him an able heir. And since it is the Holy Spirit that's leading us, we're confident that as we learn the resources he provides, we will have all the tools necessary to win the war, even though we may be slow learners. Now then, we come to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, there are some that argue that this must mean a kind of inner, subjective awareness that all believers have. Perhaps but I'm not so sure. I think the witness we have is the witness of being led by the Spirit to desire the things of God above all other things. If that's who you are, the Spirit is bearing witness that you must not fear in your struggle. You are not a slave. You're a child. Now to verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Of course, we have a wonderful promise, a promise we won't have time to mind properly today. But at the very least, you have been given a calling that you will, as the heir of the father's estate, rule with Christ over all the works of his hands. That in itself is worth a long Bible study. But notice as well, back in verse 15, the cry of our heart to God, the mighty creator, is Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, a term of endearment. We belong to God and we belong to his promises. But then in the midst of all these marvelous promises is the promise that we will also suffer with Christ. See, suffering is necessary for all heirs in their training. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 12, verse 6, that the Lord chastises every son whom he receives. Hardships are sent to discipline us so that we will no longer find the things of the flesh to be a delight, so that the things of this earth, well, they're going to grow strangely dim. So what are we left with in this passage? Well, for one, we know that every believer is locked into warfare, and it is a warfare of life and death. If you're not fighting to win and to kill the sin in your life, well, you're not a believer. But we who are believers, who love the things of God, above all other things, do not fear the outcome even at all. The one who has adopted us has a great training program, and he never fails to train his sons or daughters to reign with him. So ours is never a cry of despair. Rather, it is the spirit of adoption who leads us in a very different cry. Ours is, Abba, Father.
0: John, as you are speaking, I think it's important to ask this question. How can I be assured that I have saving faith?
1: You know, Romans 10, 9, and 10 does tell us that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. There's a categorical statement there. So faith in Christ unto salvation, trust that Christ's work on the cross was On our behalf and a full confidence that we are in him is indeed saving faith. I think I argue that saving faith when it's real does produce a lasting result in an individual and that always follows. So those two things I think I'm saying.
0: In our study today we learn so much about the Holy Spirit, about our adoption as children and heirs of God, the war against sin, and the assurance of salvation. We may wonder why Paul goes back to the basics surrounding our faith and the gospel itself, but I think one can see why. It is only when we come to live out the truths of the gospel where we discover the secret to living in a way that is pleasing to God and gives us purpose and hope. I hope that we can be encouraged and challenged with Dr. Newfeld's teaching on the spirit of adoption from Romans chapter 8. Be sure to continue listening tomorrow on the program as we'll look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 in our series, The Power of the Gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcast, and publications. One of these resources includes the bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. Each issue features engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, laugh Phil Calloway and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. We encourage you to subscribe today to receive a free copy of our December issue mailed directly to your home. Now's the time to sign up if you haven't already. You won't want to miss the special Christmas Reflections coming in the December issue. To subscribe or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.